Let's turn to God's Word again. We'll read from Psalm 19 on page 561. Let's read from verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me, and then I shall be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now we've looked at this psalm for two weeks already, and you'll remember that the the initial theme of the psalm as it opens tells us that the glory of God can be seen. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. That's an awesome truth in itself, that God's glory can be seen. And we have said that this psalm is divided into two parts. The first part reveals his glory in the creation, and the second part deals with the revelation of his glory in his word. And we've said that God has two books that can be read. One book is what we call general revelation, that God has revealed himself in the things that he has made. And there's also special revelation. Direct or particular revelation where God reveals more of himself in his word by speaking. And I hope you have understood as we looked at the creation just how clear the glory of God is. We said that it's revealed in the stars and in the cosmos, in the galaxies. That there's a clear picture that God has built that is immense and majestic that leaves us without any doubt whatsoever that a glorious and majestic God has made it. And we saw that his perfections, his attributes, in other words, what God is like, that these shine through and they're communicated even through that general revelation as you see it. Um, And we need to remember that, that we do receive that. It's not hidden. Paul says that his invisible attributes are clearly seen in these things, and that man knows 
and that though they knew God, they did not want to glorify him as God, but exchanged the worship of the creator for the worship of the creature. And that in the main is the worship of self. When you worship yourself, you are worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But Paul says they're clearly seen, they're known. His immensity, his power, his infinity, that he's eternal. These are all seen in the immense cosmos that we see around us, especially in the 21st century, as we see with clarity in a way that man has never seen the wonders and the size and the immensity of this God. But we also saw that it's emitted even in this world, in the plants and in the animals and in humanity itself, that when you look around, you see the design and the wisdom of God there. And we saw lastly that we see his beauty and his goodness in all of these things. When you look up and you look around, even in a fallen world, and you look even at the human body and the the human's ability to think and to speak and to love and all of these things, that that shows something of the beauty and the goodness of God. We're not in a in utter darkness. We're not even in a neutral space. We're in a space that is filled with the life and color and design and goodness of God. Even as we look at our families and our loves for one another, we said that the reason we marry is that God has a bridegroom and the bridegroom is mentioned in this psalm. The sun rises in verse 5 like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. These are all instances of the way God has designed things to reflect himself, that he has a son, that the family is a mirror image of something within the Trinity itself. And our ability to love and to think and to speak is a reflection of the way God exists, that he is not a static power. He is person, three persons, perfectly loving in beauty and in glory and in holiness. And why wouldn't we want to know such a God? And Paul tells us that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Though David says it declares the glory of God, Paul tells us that when that is received, that man doesn't like it. It reveals something of his wrath, of his righteousness, that we know we're not right with God, and we instinctively sit on that truth. We suppress it, sometimes even into atheism itself, so that we have taught our minds to believe that there is no God. But we have taught our minds to do that. The creation doesn't tell us that. It's us that's doing that. So as fallen as the creation is, the worst part of it is man. We are the worst thing in the creation. Though we were made in his image, and though we can become the best thing in Christ, we are the worst thing in the creation. The planets are fallen and decaying. The the plants die once a year. The animals die, they kill each other. These all have fallenness in them, but there is nothing so corrupt and so suppressing and so rebellious against God as as at least the planets still, they go according to their course. At least the lion still behaves like a lion. It does the same thing all the time. You can predict what a lion will do, but not man. We do not follow our courses, and we do not behave according to our nature. We turn against God, and we set up our own lives in opposition to the reality of God.
So Paul is right, and David would acknowledge it too. And people like Calvin studied this extensively, that although this is clear and it cannot be denied, yet man rises in opposition against it. And this general revelation is not enough to give us life or to save us. It reveals his power, his immensity, his majesty, even his beauty and goodness. It can be discerned by looking at it, but that cannot bring us to know God. It cannot save us. It cannot put us right and give us the life that God built us to have, an unending life. We can't get that from all of this. We have to get that from God himself. Suppose the difference would be that you could go into the Sistine Chapel in Rome and you could look at the wonderful work of art that was painted by the artist. You could look at the time it took him to think it all up and to paint it in all of its complexity and you can marvel at it, but that's very different than knowing the person. To look at that doesn't mean that you know Michelangelo. That does not mean you knew him. You would not know what it was like to live with him and to speak with him. You can discern from it that there is a genius behind it, but that doesn't mean you know him. And it's exactly the same with God. Something more is needed. And that's what comes out in the second half of the psalm. And David writes it this way. He leaves clues in the psalm so that we understand it. Yes, God is great. Yes, God has made great things. But in verse 7, the law of the Lord, all of a sudden. The, the Lord. And that name there in, in the capitalized form, L-O-R-D, is a translation of the personal name of God. You see in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That is the word for God generally. The powerful creator. But it doesn't mean you know him. But in verse 7, all of a sudden you have his name. And that is uh, that is mirrored in the creation account itself in Genesis 1, which we read, I think, a couple of weeks ago. That when God is making things in Genesis 1, he is referred to constantly as God. As God. As God. But in the second chapter of Genesis, when he moves close to Adam and has covenant with Adam and relationship with Adam and gives Adam commands. It is this divine name that is used. The name Yahweh that we sometimes translate as Jehovah. We just sang a psalm in which we praise Jehovah. We are not praising a God when we take that name upon our lips. We are, we are specifically speaking to a person. We know his name because he's revealed his name. So these sermons aren't about should you be an atheist or a theist? Should you believe in a God? My duty isn't to convince you that there is a God. The word tells me that you already know that in some way. We don't need to know there is a God. We need to know God. We need to know Yahweh. We need to know Christ who is Jehovah himself as the Son of God. And just notice as we 
have moved into this, that your thoughts about what God is like may be very wrong. You maybe have a very cold view of God. That may be your own fault, or it may be that someone has misrepresented God to you, even someone in the church. That you may think of this power, and you may take certain parts of the scripture, and you have this picture of this power that you cannot know, that's cold and has created things and demands things of man, and almost looks at man and finds the smallest fault in man and then wants to crush him. Now, the doctrine of sin would be for another day. But let's focus on God right now rather than sin. God doesn't present himself that way and he is not that way at all. When he gives us here his name, he is personalizing himself. That This is a matter of affection and relationship. Now you need to know that. It's not to be proved to you that there is a God. It's to be told to you that God is offering and commanding you to enter into a a loving relationship with him. Now remember that. When he made Adam and Eve, he didn't make them coldly and look upon them and see, I wonder if they'll make any mistakes. He, He was in a loving relationship with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were filled with the grace of love and of praise and joy and of knowledge and they were truly happy. Because God is a God of love. And that's why he gives himself this, or reveals, sorry, this name to us. That he's a God that enters into covenant. Covenant is relationship. Covenant is like marriage. Covenant is like father and son, parents and children. Friendship. It's friends that enter into covenants. It's kings that enter into covenants with their subjects, whom they're supposed to love and care for. And you need that, friend. You need that relationship. I know that you do. It's, in one sense, the only thing you do need. You need love. The love that was lost and smashed in the fall. And you were born into this world not knowing anything about that. You were born having already lost it. We all were. And we're born missing the most important thing that we need. That's what's wrong with the world. That That is why you feel depressed. That is why you cry. That is why you express anger. That is why you're discontent. And even as Christians, we feel these things. We are not what we ought to be. We don't have this love and this relationship that we lost. And notice in our psalm, not only... From verse 7 to 14, does he open out for us? This is the word of God, the word of the Lord, your personal uh, father, uh, to know God personally. But he ends the psalm by telling us, giving us a title for God that illustrates this for us. What does he call God at the end of the psalm? May it be acceptable in your sight, Yahweh, my strength and my redeemer. The issue is not the existence of God. The issue is your need to be saved. To be saved by a Redeemer. That's what a Redeemer does. A Redeemer looks at those who have been taken captive, those who are lost, 
those who are broken and enslaved. And the Redeemer goes in and purchases them back. The Redeemer liberates them and breaks off their chains and gives them the life they ought to have. That's what a Redeemer is in the old world that David lived in. If someone related to David had been taken captive, then David would have a responsibility as a relative of that person to go and to save them and release them. And God says of himself, I am the Redeemer. I am not just the creator. I created so that there would be a garden in this creation of love and of marriage and of joy and of life and of a relationship to the God of love and glory. And because sin has come in, I am the Redeemer. So remember that when you think about God. Remember his name and remember that word Redeemer. Do you not know what God is is like? Um, A redeemer has to be related to the person that they save. There's not some faraway God who wants to redeem you. If you have been redeemed by Christ, it's because he considers you family. You have been brought into an intimate, loving relationship with family. And when you call Christ your redeemer, that is not just a technical, theological thing that you need to understand. It's a warm word. It is a word that shows you that the God whom we sinned against is still willing to raise us up to the level of being part of his family and sharing in the family bond of his son to be given a sonship in Christ. So when we look at the word of God like this, the law of the Lord is perfect and the testimony of the Lord is sure and the precepts of the Lord are right. The reason he doesn't leave us with the general revelation, the reason he speaks is to bring us into a family and to to give us that love. That's what God wants, if I can say that reverently. That is where he is. That is who he is. Not a cold creator, but one who enters the creation with a voice, a warm, arresting, convicting voice of a father. And he says, I am that I am. I am Yahweh and I will redeem you. So we need more than the general revelation. We need this direct word revelation from God. And we would expect God to reveal himself in this way. If we've already discerned that all of this was made, that it couldn't arise out of nothing by itself, when you begin to see immensity, majesty, and beauty, and you see order and wisdom and logic in the creation, you instinctively would think, since there is a God who made all of this, in the last 6,000 years, he must have revealed himself. Otherwise, why would he have created it? And we find that he has revealed himself. That he really has. And he did so by speaking. And that's what this is a reference to. The law of the Lord is perfect. 
This is a reference to the Word of God. Yes, when you read the word law, you probably immediately think of the Ten Commandments and laws like that. But a Jew wouldn't think that way. This is synonymous with the Word of God, generally. And that law initially was given to Moses. The five books of Moses were referred to as the law. Jesus taught us that, didn't he? When the scribe asked him, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave the answer. And then Jesus told the scribe, on these commandments, these two commandments, hang all the law and the prophets. And when Jesus said that, he was referring to the first five books of the Bible. That's the law, and the rest of it is the prophets. So it's not only a reference to ten commandments. When a Jew thinks of the law, he is thinking of what God has revealed and has been written down and communicated to us. And it's bound up in a book, and that is God's law. That is where he instructs us and teaches us and reveals himself to it. And by implication, as we as Christians sing this psalm and read this psalm, as it rises out of David's lifetime and is put into the scriptures to be sung in all ages by us, as we sing as Christians, we're referring to the whole word of God when we sing this. And we have license to do that because uh, David uses so many words here that show us that his thought is general. It's called the law of God the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the judgments. So that's the the law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, and judgments. These are just titles that are printed on this thing that we call the Word of God. It does all of these things. And David says that God has spoken. He has spoken in his word. And that word is perfect and complete. That's what that word perfect means. It doesn't just mean that it's clean and has no error in it. It means that it's full. When David uses this word here, perfect. This word is used of Job and of Jacob. When it says that Jacob was a righteous man, that Job was a righteous man, what's being told to us there is that they were complete. doesn't mean they were perfectly righteous, but it it means for them that this is a person who is complete. They know God. They're living in obedience to God. They're serving others, etc. This is a complete person in God's sight. And David tells us here, yes, it's perfect without error, but it's complete. It's whole. When you look at it, it's all there. There's nothing that's going to be added to it. So why is it perfect and complete? And how did God speak? David's received it here. He tells us there is a law, a testimony, precepts. There it is. You read it in Moses. You read it in the prophets. You read it in the Gospels. But how did we receive this? And if you're skeptical about the Word of God, maybe you've never understood this or it's never been uh, taught uh, to you. Uh, How did God speak? And in what way is this Word that I'm preaching from right now, in what way is it perfect and complete? Well, it's perfect and complete 
because of its origin. And I'm going to give you three characteristics of God's word here, but its origin. If you turn forward to the New Testament, we're going to read two verses. Let's read from 2 Timothy, first of all. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 14. This comes right before the, the long letter to the Hebrews. 2 Timothy 3 and verse, uh, let's read from verse 15. This is what Paul says to Timothy, and Paul knows what he's talking about. Timothy, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction in righteousness. So at the end of verse 15, he tells Timothy, you know the scriptures, the writings, the law, You know these. Timothy's family taught them to him at a young age. And Paul says, you know these, you've learned these, they're in your mind. And they're able to make you wise unto salvation. Why? Because all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That opens a door for us into understanding where this word came from, why we have it, and why we meet in church, why I am confident to stand and declare this word to you, not as a a human writing or anything like that, that I am convicted and convinced and fearful that we are opening something eternal, we are opening the living word of God that is not from man. And Paul tells us why this scripture was given by inspiration of God. Now, It's not that God inspired the mind of the writers. As he would, as maybe what happens with an artist or musician. That you would, you would say, Beethoven would say, I felt very inspired this day. And my faculties were open and I was very inspired. So I have written the symphony. I felt inspired. That's the way we use the word inspired today. You may say that I felt very inspired to write this or to make this. That's not what Paul is telling us here. Uh, There's a slightly unfortunate translation in a way that it says inspired because the word Paul uses is the word theonoustos, which means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed and is profitable. That's what the word means. To inspire means that something is breathed into you. That's why artists use that term. When they say, I felt inspired, they're saying that something came in from the outside and It stimulated them and inspired them. That breath came into them. That's what it means. The word spirate means breath. 
But Paul isn't saying that the men who wrote the scriptures felt inspired. He's telling Timothy that it was breathed out by God. That's where it came from. That's the breath of God. So it's not even that all scripture is inspired, but all scripture is expired. It, it was breathed out from God. When you want to speak, you take a breath in. And as you speak, you breathe out and the words are formed and people know what's in your mind. That's what happens when you speak. You expire and breathe out. And when you speak to me, then I know what your thoughts are because you've, you've told me one of your thoughts. Well, Paul's telling us here that the scriptures originated in the mind of God. That's where they come from. They, they do not come from the philosophy of men or the intelligence of men or the culture even of men. That may affect how they're written down and expressed, but that's not where they come from. It's given by expiration and breathed out by the eternal God himself who built the cosmos. So I look and I think, what is God like that he made all of this? And I find myself born into a world where there is such a thing as the history of Christianity and a Bible. And the Bible tells me I was breathed out by God, so I should take that seriously. If I'm in a world that I don't understand, and I don't know where it came from, and I don't know what my life is for, and throughout the history of that world, a book has survived that says I was breathed out by the God who made all of this, I ought to take that seriously. It is God breathed. So when you read this word, the verses we read in Psalm 19, the passage we just read, you are, you are looking at the thoughts of God. They're not arrived at by wondering and philosophy. They're arrived at by revelation. When you read your Bible, you are not looking at ideas about God. You are looking at the thoughts of God that he has given you to know. And that should make it solemn to read your Bible. It should excite you to read your Bible. And it should give an authority that comes into your life each day that's unquestioned. When you read your Bible, you are not reading the thoughts of Paul about God. You are reading God's thoughts about himself. It is the breath of God. And that word breath can also mean spirit. They're the same in the New Testament. The same word for breathing and for the Holy Spirit. It's the same word. And it is, it's uh, consistent when you read something like this and it says it's God breathed. That you should immediately think that this was the breath of God. And just as it was the Spirit who was the agent that created everything in the first half of the psalm. That the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And the Spirit of God, He made the grass. And the Spirit of God created the water molecules. And the Spirit of God created all of the animals and designed them. And gave them life. He breathed the breath of life into them. Just as the Spirit hovered and vibrated in life and in power over the creation. So it's the same Spirit that as God breathes, 
the Holy Spirit carries the word of God into the world and he constructs this word. This is the Holy Bible and it is written by the Holy Spirit of God. You have to listen to him. If you read this person and he's the one that built the world and the oceans and the mountains, then you must take what he says seriously. So it is complete and perfect in David's mind because it originated from the mouth of God. It is his breath written by his spirit, as David knew full well, as one filled with the Holy Spirit himself, as he wrote his Psalms. That is where it originates, but then it comes to us. And uh, we see that in the passage we read in Second Peter, Second Peter 1 and verse 20. Paul puts it one way to Timothy, Peter puts it this way. No prophecy of scripture is of private interpretation. Prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Peter does there exactly what I just did. That when he knows it's the breath of God, he knows it's the Holy Spirit. And he tells us it's the Holy Spirit here. It didn't come from the will of man, but men spoke of God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So it originates in the mind of God and is breathed out. But Peter tells us how it came to the people, the men, who then wrote it down. And he says that they were carried by the Holy Spirit. That they were uh, ferried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were borne up and held by the Holy Spirit. So the idea here is not that men uh, were sitting in a home somewhere or in the desert. And they were zapped with a, comp a set of information. That then like robots they wrote it down. That is not... That the healthy and organic doctrine of the inspiration of scripture that we believe or that the Bible tells us. What actually happened was that although God breathed and spoke, that the Holy Spirit was so active and involved in the person, in their mind and in their circumstances, that he oversaw and governed the process. So what Daniel and Isaiah saw, and what they then considered to write down, the Holy Spirit governs and moves them and carries them as they write it down. So when Isaiah writes it down and finishes his prophecy, though he sat and he wrote it and he considered it and thought about it, it was the Holy Spirit in him that moved Isaiah and governed him to write down the word of God. So it's God breathed and comes from him. And the Holy Spirit moved these men. As they wrote and designed their writings. To be the word of God to the church. So hear that friend. Hear it. You attend church. You've been brought up in the church. 
It is difficult to read the Bible sometimes, to understand what it means. I remember when I was 15 and I was reading the book of Revelation, I didn't understand it. I thought this is strange. I read other parts of the Bible. Um, It is difficult when you don't understand what is this and where does it come from and why, why do we have to read this? We'll hear that. It's the mind and breath of God to you. And it was the Holy Spirit that moved these men to write it. Listen to Christ. Listen to Christ. Not only Paul and Peter. Command these stones to become bread. And the Lord said to the enemy, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And even the Son of God lived on this word. He lived on the words that proceeded from the mouth of God. That's what we have here. God breathed the Holy Spirit governing, and it is the word from the very mouth of God. So Christian, that's all you need. That is all you need. Don't listen to man as a final authority. Don't be pragmatic about God's word. Don't listen to people who turn you away from God's word. Or when you see something in the plain light of day in God's word, and people today want to tell you it doesn't really mean that, and they want to turn it into something else. You don't listen to that. You say what Jesus said. He said to Satan, it is written. And it came from the mouth of God. It is written. You don't need, in that sense, man to warp and turn God's word away Uh, from the uncomfortable things that God may expect of you or expect of a church. You don't listen to man and don't base it on man. Men have many ideas, even Christian men have many ideas. And they'll say pragmatically, this is right, and this is right, and this is right, and this makes sense. And in wisdom we ought to do this. And your question should always be, is it written? This is the only authority in your life. So it comes from God and originates with God. It's also perfect because of the way that it was delivered to us. The way it was delivered to man, and Peter alluded to that by telling us that holy men of God were moved by and carried by the Holy Spirit. And if you're struggling to understand God's word and what David tells us in our psalm about the perfection of the word of God and how sure it is and how right it is and how pure it is and how we can trust it and live by it, then maybe you need to know how it came to us. I've given you the principle, but how did the word come to us? Well, God spoke into the world. And let me give you a quick overview of how he did that. He spoke to Adam. He was, he appeared to Adam. Adam could see him and hear him. And after the fall, he continued to speak and make himself known to Cain and to Abel, to Enoch and to Noah. 
He did that by appearing sometimes, but certainly by speaking audibly, they could hear the word of God. But God developed the way that he revealed himself uh, to man. After that, with the patriarchs, he appeared to Job and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He appeared as the Redeemer, as David says in our psalm. Job saw him and said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see God. And Abraham knew that he had a Redeemer and a Savior in this God, Yahweh, against all the pagan gods that were around him. This is special revelation. God spoke to these men. Um, he spoke to Joseph in dreams. That's a form of the Word of God. Not dreams like we have. Vivid prophetic dreams. Visions that happen in, in the night. These aren't, I had a dream and this is my interpretation. These were vivid forms of God's word. And then to the nation of Israel, he spoke especially to Moses and then through him. He appeared to Moses. He arrested Moses in an unchristian state when Moses was still lost and Moses had embraced the life of Egypt and his place in the palace. And it wasn't until Moses was 40 that he felt moved and convicted about the state of God's people. And God began to work in that way in his life. And he appeared to Moses in the wilderness. And I just noticed that as I'm describing all of this, you say, well, it says that he appeared to Abraham. How do I know that? It says that he appeared to Moses. This may all just be fiction. It's, it's not fiction. Do you think Moses was wandering around Egypt trying to make up a religion? Do you think he gave up his place as perhaps the next pharaoh of Egypt and gave up the family that had brought him up and all of his friends and colleagues and all that he had built, all that he had achieved? Do you think he gave that up to look after some sheep? For no reason. Do you think that Moses had heat stroke one day and imagined a god? You can't say that unless you've read Moses. It bears authenticity as real when you read it. This is not a man who was searching to build a religion. This is a man who was astonished at what he saw and was terrified. And when God told him to go and redeem the Israelites, Moses said, no. And I cannot speak. That doesn't sound like the founder of a world religion. Joseph Smith didn't say, I cannot speak. Joseph Smith wanted to speak and speak and speak. Moses didn't. Moses said, send Aaron. I don't want to go on it. I cannot speak for you. When you read it, it rings true as a historical account of a man who was astonished at the revelation that was given to him. And that continued in the nation of Israel. Two million Israelites saw the glory of God at Mount Sinai and they heard his voice and they said, we are about to die if we hear this voice again. These aren't people making up fiction. These are people astonished and perplexed and in awe at the things that they saw. And it goes on and on through the nation of Israel, through the judges and the kings and the chronicles that God continued to raise up prophets that he either would appear to or speak to audibly. And then towards the end of that Old Testament, there were writing 
prophets that God moved. Some of them he appeared to, some of them he gave visions to, and they wrote the word of God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Malachi. These men, shepherds, kings, nobodies, some of them, absolute nobodies. And yet when God interacted with them, then they would walk into Israel in very dangerous situations where the established religious men could kill them and hate them for what they were saying. These men stood and they would tell kings and authorities, you are not right with God and here is why. And it was all written down for us to read. Then you have Christ revealing the glory of God in his words and preaching. You have Paul and Peter and the apostles who had seen Christ and who wrote their epistles. And then in his old age, John received revelation directly from Christ while in captivity and banished on the Isle of Patmos. So when I say to you, um, this is the word of God and it's from God. That's what I mean. That is the word of God. And you can trust that word. You can interact with that word. And you should take that word seriously. That word was closed. And God told us he would close it. And we're going to look at that in another sermon actually. Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9, about what God told him and how he was going to close the word. But you need to take that. You need to, um, you need to ask yourself this. Why after John, at the end of the Bible, don't you have lots of prophets and everything in the church writing lots of new scripture? Why don't we have them today? Why, why isn't there a minister in the RPCNA saying, I have a new word from God? And here it is, and it should be added to the Bible. Why doesn't that happen in the true church, in the Reformed church, in the Apostolic church? Why? Because they knew it was closed. Paul didn't write more and more and more and say, add this to the Bible. After John received his revelation, you don't have the church fathers writing lots of other things and saying, add these to the Bible. That's what you would expect if this was all made up if this was just the will of man, if these are just men's thoughts about God, men have many thoughts about God. Why don't we add them to the Bible? The fact that this canon closed 2,000 years ago is massive testimony to the veracity and truth of our understanding that this is the Word of God. Because men would just keep coming up with ideas and wanting to add to it. And Daniel told us it would be so. That after the ministry of Christ. And after the Messiah, the Prince would come to Jerusalem. That he would seal up vision and prophecy and there would be no more. And Daniel said that in what, 550 B.C.? The prophets were already saying long before Christ came, this canon will be closed. So here we have it. It's perfect and complete because it comes from the mouth of God. It's delivered by the Holy Spirit 
and it's complete because we have the complete revelation that God's given to man from Adam to John, and the canon is closed. Let me say a word to you before we leave about the fact that it's complete because it's been preserved for us accurately in that form. God's law is perfect. It is sure. It is true, David tells us. And we have the same word. You can look at this and say, well, that was thousands of years ago. And all of the new atheists, when they became excited about 15 years ago, when Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens rose up to attack the veracity of God's word, the, the new atheists are very excited about this, and that's, that's their favorite thing to say. The word was corrupted. How do we know it's the same? How do we know these things happened? Um, Chinese whispers. You, you, you repeat something and you copy it, and then it gets passed on through generation to generation. It will change. We don't even know if what we have here is even what Peter said. We don't know, but we do know. That's the problem with men like Dawkins and others. They don't know, but we do know, because we have all of the evidence. The whole Old Testament, as we have it in our Bible today, you could buy it in Egypt 200 years before Christ was born. You could buy it, translate it into Greek, and you could read it in your house, complete, not with all these added books claiming to be the Word of God. There's been no change. You could buy the complete Old Testament then. And people criticized that. Up until, what, 70 years ago or so, people would look at the Hebrew Bible, and the oldest one we had was from 1000 AD, a thousand years ago. So you have the Hebrew Bible in the time of Christ, and then this gap, and then we have the, the earliest Hebrew Bible in a thousand AD, and all of those critics that lived at the end of the 1800s and at the beginning of the, the 1900s, the German criticism attacked the church and they said, we don't know if it's the same. There's probably been lots of changes. It's, it's not trustworthy. People could have corrupted it and changed it. Sounds like a powerful argument. We don't know what happened between Jesus' life and 1000 AD. What happened to the Bible? And they laughed and scoffed at the Bible until a good chunk of these books were discovered in 1947 next to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Scrolls. And they found in those caves thousands of manuscripts delivered by the providential hand of God to silence the pride and the uneducated assertions of men who speak in utter foolishness against God's word. God, he who sits in heaven shall laugh, the Psalms tell us. And that is what God did. That's what he gave to the church. 
that they discovered in those caves next to the Dead Sea thousands of manuscripts, many of which contained entire books of the Old Testament. They had an entire Isaiah scroll. And lo and behold, did the scroll go back to 1000 AD? No, it went a lot further back than that. This scroll was written before Jesus was even born. They found scrolls in 1947 that were over 2,000 years old. So they took the scroll of Isaiah and they compared it to the current Jewish Bible and you, you know what the outcome was. They were basically the same. The genius of the Jews that they can copy time and time again the scriptures of God for 2,000 years and there's basically no serious doctrinal difference. There was a scroll in that cave for 2,000 years saying that Christ would be a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief and he will be pierced for our transgressions and our iniquity and transgression shall be laid upon him. And throughout all that 2,000 years of history and through all the wars and everything, even up until the Second World War, There's a scroll sitting in a cave that contains the writing that was breathed out by the Spirit of God in a cave, in that cave preaching, saying, Christ is Lord, he is the sacrifice, he is the Messiah. And in God's good providence, we found them. I have many more things to say to back up the veracity of Scripture, but I've used up all of my time and we'll revisit this um, next week. Uh, May God bless the truths of his word to our needy souls, and may we all accept and be confronted by the veracity of God's word. Let's remain seated for a moment to pray. Let us pray. Our gracious and eternal God, we bless you for the gift of the word. And that in this day in which we live, in an age where man is destroying himself, that we have the words of God, and that they have lasted so long, and that when we look upon these pages, we can trust that these are the accurate accounts of all of the works and words that you have carried out in this world. This is your living word to make us wise unto salvation. Your law is perfect and it restores the soul of man. Help us then, even on this day, to read this word and to take it seriously, that it would breathe life into our lives and that we would be turned from darkness to light. O Lord, continue to speak to us from this word and help us to value it more than gold and to treasure it up in our souls. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen.